This message by Sam Shin, entitled Restoration Fellowship, was recorded at Wellspring Church on November 3rd, 2019. The text for this message is 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 to 10. I proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So the past few weeks, we spoke about fellowship with God as the goal of the Christian life. But the question that should sort of be at the forefront of your mind is, what happens when that fellowship is broken? Can it be restored? Is it possible? And in this passage, we're going to look at what this restoration of fellowship looks like by examining a couple of facts. First of all, fellowship cannot coexist with sin. And second, Jesus restores fellowship with God and others. First, fellowship cannot coexist with sin. And we see this in verse 6, 8, and 10. And we, uh, I'm going to take this by examining a few points, subpoints. First is that sin destroys fellowship. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So the question is, how can you go the opposite way of God? So if God is going this way, how can you go this way, which is what sin essentially is? Is it possible to go the opposite way and still have fellowship with God? And when we looked at what fellowship was, is that it's this walking with God. It's a, a journey and it's a, a loving journey in friendship, in intimacy, then if you decide to go the opposite way of where God is walking, does it mean that you cannot be in fellowship? It's a really big conundrum. And actually, to unpack this fully well, it would take maybe another two hours to do that. But I'll try to do my best in this, in this shortened period of time. John makes it clear, if you say you are in fellowship with him and you're going your own way apart from him, then either you're deceiving yourself or you make God out to be a liar. But you can't be doing both. You can't be saying, I'm in fellowship with God, walking with him, but going exactly the opposite direction. And that just doesn't seem to make sense. So if you get to this fork in the road and God's leading you and he says, come this way, and going this way leads to being with him eternally, and you decide to go the opposite way. You, you look at the other path. And so in God's path, there's, say, the most satisfying, delightful, infinitely joyous place you could ever go to. And that's God's path. The other path is 
Power, money, sex, fame, fortune, success, applause, reputation, morality, all yours this way. And you're at this fork and you're walking alongside, which way do you go? You can't say that I'm in fellowship with God, but moving down this direction. That's a contradiction. Also, John describes sin this way. He calls it a walk in darkness. And that phrase is so important to understand. It's more than just an act. That's the problem with the way that we define or think of sin. We'll cover sin a lot more next week. But oftentimes we think of sin as the act of sinning. So stealing, lying, committing adultery, having a, like actually acting out lustful thoughts. But sin is more than just the act of sin. It's the domain of sin. And that concept is so important. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So the domain of darkness is essentially what John is talking about as well in the walk in darkness. That's an atmosphere. It's not an act, but an atmosphere. It's very much a, a contagious pollution. And it affects not just your own soul, but everything around us. Paul writes about it in Romans 8 that this world is groaning. And the reason it's groaning is because of the power of sin, the atmosphere, the domain of sin. It's why Paul describes our struggle not against flesh and blood. It's not physical, but it's against principalities and powers and rulers of this dark age. And this isn't just for the ultra-charismatic people out there who sort of think on those terms. This is what the Bible says is how reality is. So the domain of darkness, the walk in darkness, just like darkness is a, a full orb picture of yourself, so too is sin. And sin is so much more than Satan and demons. In fact, even if there was no Satan and demons if you were inherently sinful, you would still sin apart from Satan. Satan just simply connives, this crafty tempter. But sin is still the reality of our world. It's the power of sin and those impacted and living by sin that keeps us in fellowship with God. That's what John is trying to make this point, is that we're always going to see that sin contradicts fellowship. Secondly is that the failure to take sin seriously destroys fellowship. It's not just that sin is there. It's that we actually don't see it serious enough. We see this in verse 8 and 10. If we say we have no sin, if we say we have not sinned. So this is the problem, the dangerous problem that arises for both non-Christian and Christian alike. That is to say that people are saying that sin isn't so bad, or maybe they're not so bad, that they don't really sin, or if they do, they don't really see it as a problem. Because, again, the problem with viewing sin is that we see it as simply the action. And so if you were to look at your life, you might not deem yourself to be so bad because you don't see the actions per se. Now, granted, if you were to go and ask a spouse a child, a parent, a coworker, and say, hey, do you ever see me as a sinner? 
they might say, yes, I do. And here's how. And you might be thinking, wait a second, I didn't know I was like that. And we might even disagree with that. But one thing John is telling us all here is that we have to admit that we are sinners. We can't say we have no sin. And so, because it's not about the action, we might also be quick to say, at least I'm not like her. I'm not as bad as him. I don't know if you've ever been in a conflict, and that's the first thing you think of is, I'm not like that guy over there. So perhaps we might even go a step further and think, I don't murder anyone. I don't take drugs. Uh, we, we think about sinners generically, that they're sort of this ideal out there. They're, they're the morbid people of the world. But for us, not so much. In other words, there's a differentiation between the act of sin and the heart of sin. They think because they're not always acting out sin, they don't actually sin. Or we might, again, think of it generically. Well, yeah, I'm a sinner, but in, in my heart of hearts, I actually don't think I really do sin. Not really that badly, at least. And if I do sin, it's every once in a blue moon. It's not really that often. But Jesus dealt with this. He dealt with this heart in Matthew 5. He said in Matthew 5 that it's the angry heart that in that moment is committing murder. He equates it to murder. And I think for us, we still don't get it. We still think that, well, no, I'm not really murdering anyone. So it's, it's, I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is saying. But you have to understand what Jesus knows is he knows our hearts completely. He doesn't have to look at actions to determine what the heart looks like. He knows that when I seethe, when I'm embittered, when I refuse to forgive, that that same heart born in a certain circumstance, born in a particular nation or under impoverished conditions, or maybe with parents who were rearing me in a certain way, that same heart would be no different than the murderer himself. The only difference is that the environment has changed, but the heart is the same. And Jesus knows exactly what that heart looks like. What John is addressing is that if I am saying to people, I'm actually pretty good and you're not, you're a lot worse than I am because I look at you, you're in prison, I'm not. But what Jesus and John and the Bible is saying is, no, we have that heart. And until we get to that place, we won't really understand the gospel. The heart that commits the action is no different than someone who just simply thinks that way or feels that way. This is why we have to stop the young child whose heart is filled with anger seething because their younger sister took the toy from them and they're furious and they raise their fist and we think, oh, that's so cute. You know, maybe they're, it's a two-year-old and a, and I don't know, one-year-old, let's say, I don't know however old they are, but, and we see the little fist go up in the air and say, and they're about to hit them. They hit them very lightly and you think, oh, that's so cute. Or maybe your child hits you as a parent 
and they're so young, it doesn't really hurt you, obviously, and it's almost cute. Well, no, there's, they're not so cute internally. You know, Jesus looks inside their soul and sees actually rebellion and anger and murder. One day, left unimpeded by correction, by truth, that person can be just as sinful as the murderer, the adulterer, drug addict. If we don't believe this, John says we're liars and the truth is not in us. Such a stark phrase, right? It's so stark. He leaves us no quarter to hide. He, he doesn't allow us to sort of find gray areas and say, but John, you can't really be thinking that I'm like that guy in prison over there. He says, if we're not willing to recognize this, then we are self-deceived. And it is the deception of our age where no, we're not to blame for anything. If something goes wrong, I'm not at fault. It's something out there. It's society. Society says alcoholism is a disease. And yes, alcohol, drugs, they create biochemical changes in your brain. There's impact. But at the core, at the very, but way back when, way back when, if you keep on going back and back and you examine and you, you consider, you begin to see that what caused this man to drink and not care about his consequences? Was it the disease? Is the drug addict all about a disease? Is the kleptomaniac all about the disease and so therefore they're not responsible for stealing? John is saying here that we must not look at actions to determine what is wrong. Instead, we have to look at the problem of a heart that is rebellious against God, a creator who is righteous and just. And unless we turn to Christ and be cleansed of our sins, we're always going to yield to our sinful hearts. We're always going to go our own direction. So if God is going this way, we're going to decide to go this way. And if it means... I want to escape from this world and drink to oblivion. Well, that's not just a disease. It's not a disease at the core. At the core, it's a heart that says, I want to do things my own way. And so John, again, doesn't allow us to hide. If I get angry, it's not because my kids caused it or my wife caused me to be angry. You see, that's the problem with me and maybe with you is that when we get angry, we think someone else caused the anger. No, John's telling us it's always there in our heart. It's our, I'm going my own way, self-centered heart. And something out there suddenly is a trigger to that. And it's a child, their rebellion, their anger suddenly causes me to say, how dare you treat me that way? As a husband, as a wife, as a parent, where we're always wrestling with this. So if I lust, it's not pornography's fault. Does it mean I should be around pornography? No, absolutely not. But do not think that a computer causes my heart to act that way. It's my heart. If I get drunk all the time, it isn't because my father was an alcoholic. That's a factor. It's a tempting factor. It influences my life. 
But at the core of my heart, there's still a desire to say, I'm going to take this into my own hands. And if drink gets me to be comfortable, to relax, and maybe without self-control, it just blows out. If I have a filthy mouth, it's not because my grade school friends taught me those words. No, my words, I don't need to say certain words. I was listening, I was reading a little um, graphic. It was actually a, a, a Christian curse word list. And it had, it had all these replacement words for every expletive. I mean, there was about 50 replacement words, like, um, you know, man or gash dang or whatever, dang, and all these little words that described how you could get away with saying certain words without it being a bad word. I just laughed at that because I thought it doesn't matter. I had a friend in college. He used to always say, oh, fudge. You know, he would say words that sounded exactly like a certain word, but not. And really, that's just trying to hide behind what's in the heart. That's the essence of it all. And so it is dangerous. It is deadly to think that something out there causes me to turn away from God. It's just not true. It's not biblical. It's not what God says. Earlier this year, our family was having a problem. We um, There was these... There are these outdoor cockroaches. They're brown. It's, there's not like the household cockroaches. It's like these brown cockroaches. They were all outside our, on, on the sidewalks. We noticed them. We're like, oh, that's disgusting. And they would skitter away like a cockroach. Uh, but suddenly they started appearing in one of our rooms. And so we did what you do when that happens. You clean the room spick and span. So we cleaned it up, and then it would still be there. I was like, oh, man. What's... So um, it's, it was such a contrast, though, because you see that cockroach just skittering away in the room, and you know, everyone's screaming, trying to smash it and do all these things. But what a contrast, a spick-and-span clean room and a, a filthy cockroach. Yet, after investigating, so I started examining every place, and I realized that, first of all, I always showed up in a bathroom, it started there and it came through. And I realized that there were these holes in the shower that sort of were meant to be an outflow for water. And um, after sealing up the hole with some strong uh, caulk, no more cockroaches. I just think that's a really apt illustration <laughs> of our really nice hearts. You know, you can clean your heart so seemingly. Everything looks beautiful. But there appears this filthy cockroach. And you clean it the best you can with all of your niceties. The clothing, the smiles, the morality, the behavior. And you put on your best face at church, you come, but suddenly the cockroach just shows up. The sin, out of nowhere, and it's so embarrassing. And you hide it. You don't want anyone to see it there. And you see, smashing the sin for a moment, it doesn't get rid of the sin. Because it's not just the revealing of the sin, it's the cause. You have to go to the cause. You have to plug up the hole. You have to plug up the source. And the only seal that keeps these, quote, 
sinful cockroaches out of your heart is the blood of Christ. That's it. He's the only one that could seal up the source problem. And to say you have no sin or to say that you aren't so bad is no different than if we were to look at those cockroaches and think, ah, it's not so bad to have those cockroaches roaming around this nice clean room. If you let those roaches reproduce one by one, even in a spick and span place, it will be infested. Can you see then how failure to take sin seriously destroys your fellowship with God? To have fellowship with God inherently means not that you never sin, because that's not possible. But it is the realization that you are a sinner that shows you have fellowship with God. It's the fact that you recognize that as you're walking along, there are all these hurdles along the way. And if you just ignore them all, then that might reveal you don't know Christ at all. You don't have fellowship with him. But it is the Christian who says, I am a sinner. I do need Christ. I am no better than that person in prison. The drug addict on the street. It's what makes a church gracious. If we are so stuck with thinking that the church has to be filled with a bunch of morally righteous, everything looks so clean, so nice, then we have failed to understand what it means to be a Christian. In fact, John says, be careful, you might not be a Christian at all. You're deceiving yourself. You're making God a liar. Because Jesus is the one who makes it so clear to us that you are in danger of the fires of hell because you struggle with anger. And you need Christ. You need him. For this reason, we need a savior. We need the hole to be plugged up. Because our sin keeps us from God. It makes us want nothing to do with him. Or it makes us put Jesus in a little corner and we pull him out every once in a while when we go to church on Sunday. That's when Jesus gets pulled out of our lives. He comes out of our pocket, stand him up in the front and say, all right, Jesus, I'm going to meet a bunch of Christians and I need you to make me look like a Christian. And then next tomorrow, I'm going to have a business meeting. Oh, you're going back into the corner. Or I'm going to meet with the teacher at school and my kid is having a really hard time. I need to really give that teacher the business because they're messing up my child. So Jesus, you're going back into the corner again. There are so many instances where Jesus goes into the corner of our lives. And that's dangerous. How can we ever have fellowship with someone like Jesus when we can't see him as he is? We refuse to believe him and to trust him. Fellowship with God begins with the recognition that we need a savior. Because we actually see ourselves as desperate sinners in need of grace. And we want him in our lives. Anyone who has had a conflict with a loved one knows that if you absolutely refuse to yield to the fact that you're at fault, that you have hurt the person, that you need forgiveness, then that relationship is hindered from flourishing. It just will never flourish. I'm not talking about having some sort of roommate type of relationship, but I'm talking about a flourishing relationship. Flourishing relationship requires two people to acknowledge that they have hurt the other person and to ask for forgiveness. 
If they say, if someone says to you, do you know that you have hurt me? And you respond, I don't believe I've hurt you at all. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, you're not going to have a flourishing relationship. The relationship that lasts is one where two people say, you have hurt me. Here's how. And the other person says, I see that. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And there's a dialogue. It's a regular realization of hurt and forgiveness. And that leads to strength and power. So, again, we cannot move forward in relationship, in fellowship, if we refuse to take sin seriously. One thing we do know is that there is hope for our fellowship. Jesus restores fellowship with God and with others. And and we see this in verses 7 through 9. And the first way we see this is that Jesus restores our fellowship with the Father. Look at verses 7 and 9 again. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It it allows us to have fellowship with him, which ultimately leads to fellowship with the Father. Jesus restores this fellowship. And verse 7 makes clear that Christians still sin. The fact that Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin assumes that there is still sin in the Christian's life. We still wrestle with sin. Paul reveals this battle against sin in Romans 7.15. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. The cleansing then does not mean that I've continued unbroken. I have continued unbroken relationship and fellowship with God. Sin is still a part of my life. God is grieved by sin. But what John is telling us is that the legal aspect of sin has been forever done away with in Christ Jesus. That is to say that God has freed you from the guilt of sin, the punishment of sin. And he has done that forever, past, present, future sin. He knows what your future sins are going to be like. And even knowing that, he still forgives you. He still loves you. He still draws you near because you're in Christ. You are accepted. You're a son. You're a daughter. You've been declared righteous. That's what it means to be justified when Paul constantly uses that word. You are justified. You're declared righteous. Even as you're sinning in the middle of it, in Christ Jesus, God calls you righteous. That's the power of the gospel. It is so unfathomable because that's just not how we think. When someone is actively against you, you don't think to them, well, I want to declare you righteous. Quite the opposite. We call them every name. We think horrible things. But this is our God. This is grace. This is his mercy. And this will never change because of Jesus' blood. This means that all of your sins, the worst of them, have been tossed into the depths of the sea. We sing about that in song. As far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed my transgressions from me. If you came here today and you're in the middle of the worst argument of your life with someone, someone you love, and you just feel miserable, you're still cleansed from sin. 
You're loved while you're sinning. That doesn't mean that God loves that you do sin. But that is just how powerful the cleansing power of Jesus' blood is. That's why we sing about the blood of Christ so much. Because Jesus' blood, his sacrifice on that cross was enough for God to say, anyone who places their trust in you, I forgive this person forever and ever. And Jesus is not taken aback thinking, I'm so shocked that they did that. I'm so shocked that they were turning away from me like that. He knew about your sins and he still died on the cross for you. And he did this to assure you that though the father is saddened by sin, he is infinitely overjoyed because of his son and his blood covers you fully, completely. Paul says this then in Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who is to condemn? No one can condemn another person if they are covered in the blood of Christ. Again, this is why the church, we Christians, have to be the most gracious of people. We cannot go around saying, well, how dare you do that? How can you sin like that? Who is to condemn? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? And if we should do so, then maybe we don't understand why Jesus died for me. Next is that confession leads to restored fellowship. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You must confess your sins, not generally, but specifically. Because it's too easy to confess it generally, isn't it? Oh, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. Or we go up to someone and say, well, I'm so sorry I sinned. If you have a loved one who says, what specifically then are you talking about? That's when it gets really hard. Well, how dare you call me to account? I already said I'm sorry. How dare you to say specifically, what do you mean? But it's because it's so easy to say it generally, isn't it? When we confess. Because once we have to specifically say it, we actually take accountability for it. And when you specifically confess sin, you humble yourself. And that is so hard for our wills. It's so difficult. Because inherently we're self-righteous. We're self-protective. We see ourselves higher than others, not lower than others. So once we have to say, I'm sorry because I did this, this, this. It really forces us to lower ourselves. And that's so hard. Also, we know that We're supposed to confess our sins to one another. That's what James says in James 5. It's not just confessing it before God. We confess it to one another. This restores our fellowship. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It allows us to come together and to realize that we're in this together. So confession is so important. And it allows us to experience the freedom from that sin. Because how sweet it is to hear someone say, I forgive you. I forgive you. And you know why you forgive a person who confesses sin? Because you're no different than them. 
we sin the same sin that they do, what they're confessing, you should be thinking, yeah, I've done that too. I'm just as messed up. I need Jesus just as much as you do. It's only then that the domain of darkness is broken. Only then that the light switch is turned on and suddenly you see, you know, it isn't as bad as I thought it was. If we could only realize that for ourselves, but so much of us is curled inward, living in this atmosphere of darkness, all because we're trying to be self-protective of something that we should never be protective in the first place. And look what Jesus does. He restores fellowship with one another. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Amazingly, it doesn't stop there. The same fellowship the father has with the son and spirit is also what we can have for one another. But what defines this fellowship? It is the blood of Christ, his son. It is life together in this journey, walking with God, reminding one another, oh yeah, Jesus died for me because I'm unrighteous. And he also died for you because you're unrighteous. And we have to constantly remind each other of that because we so quickly forget. Literally, every moment of every day, we forget. Without this fellowship as the centerpiece of a relationship as Christians, we don't have fellowship at all, actually. Then it's friendship, which doesn't sound so bad, but friendship is always limited. Fellowship is eternal. Fellowship lasts. Fellowship persists. Fellowship refuses to give up, refuses to yield, even when there's deep sorrows and pains. Imagine you gathered three times a week with a bunch of families because your child was part of a soccer team. So, and they all were soccer parents. And each day, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you got together. You talked about work with these families, uh, with the different people. You had coffee on the field together. You sold candy together as to raise funds for the soccer team, for team sponsorships. You made banners together. Everyone wore the team jersey. The balls and cones are all on the field. And the thing is, the kids never played soccer ever. You always talked about it. You prepared for it. You raised funds for it. But there was never a soccer game. So here's the thing. No matter how great the conversations are or how good you are at raising funds, eventually you'd say, you know what? I don't know if this is worth my time. The kids never play soccer. <laughs> That's why we're here. But we never really play. We only talk around it and do all this stuff about it. Well, that's what fellowship in the church is like when we don't actually ever talk about Jesus changing our lives. When we're so busy pointing out problems and faults, but never realize, oh yeah, I messed up. I actually need Christ. He's the one who satisfies my soul. When we're looking externally and saying, well, that person looks so different. I don't know if they should be here. I don't want to, I don't want my kids to associate with that person because they look so off that's not a church that's not fellowship it's definitely not fellowship with Jesus fellowship with Jesus is where you are regularly engaged in talking about the difference Jesus Christ makes in your life 
That should impact how we parent, how we view our work, how we view our friendships, how we view life together. And it should be in a way in which we cannot walk away from that relationship. It doesn't mean you can't talk about other things, but we never just simply talk about other things and never mention Christ. Fellowship with Christians, it's a marvel that cannot be matched. And if you've ever been in relationship with someone whom you can talk about anything and Jesus, and he actually is the centerpiece about everything, it is so sweet. You can experience that anywhere around the world. That's the amazing thing about Christian fellowship is that it's not just in our church. We went to a funeral service, a memorial service yesterday. We're at Valley Bible Church and I'm there talking to people who go to Valley Bible Church. And I'm thinking, man, these people are just like us. I've been in most amazed by some places around the world, whether it's Villafranca, Spain or Mishineca, Malawi, Las Pulgas, Mexico. Chuk, Micronesia. Those are some of the places I've been to. And you know what's amazing? Every one of those places I go, they talk about the same Lord. They talk about what Jesus has done for them. A couple of months ago, actually, a woman from Australia was here. She came up to me afterward. And she had tears in her eyes. And she said to me, it is amazing that this, the same gospel that I hear in Australia is being preached in San Ramon. My friends, when we gather with Christians, what makes our fellowship unmatchable is not because everybody is bemoaning the warriors. It's not because everybody plays soccer, has kids in soccer, or because everyone has teenagers who are taking tests and trying to get to a certain college. If that's the case, you don't want to be a part of this church. If that's all we have together, it's not worth it meeting every Sunday. But the gospel that Jesus' blood cleanses us of unrighteousness, the same unrighteousness that clutters the prisons of this country and this world is my unrighteousness. That that person out there from the street or from a prison can come into this place and, say, and people can say, you are welcome here. If we're not able to do that, then I don't know if we know the blood of Christ deeply enough. You see, we rob ourselves of joy if we think fellowship is based on common interest or life stage or ethnicity or socioeconomic class. If you think, oh, I can't relate to him or her because she's wounded. He has a different, unique, odd personality. She dresses really weird. He isn't so intellectually refined. If you think fellowship is dependent upon people who walk, talk, think, dress, speak like you, then you don't understand what John is talking about here in 1 John 1, 1 through 5. Martin Lloyd-Jones mentioned him many times, pastor uh, formerly in uh, Westminster Chapel in England, and the, really one of the best preachers of last century, and I think in church history, he says this, would you sooner spend a number of hours, and this is his test of true fellowship, would you sooner spend a number of hours with the humblest of Christian 
than with the most elevated and exalted non-Christian? Would you sooner be with the, the godly man or woman who has suffered for the sake of Christ than to be with the CEO of, of a multi-billion dollar company? Fellowship is to see beyond this world and to understand it goes far deeper. Why is this such the test? Because Christians walk in the light. John tells us that Jesus died so that we can have this fellowship, according to verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus reminds us that we are vile sinners. And I don't run away from that. I know that's why we talk about the blood of Jesus, because he didn't die for a nice person. If that were the case, then he didn't need to die at all. He died for a vile sinner. We are in need of rescue. We're drowning. We're helpless. And he doesn't leave us in our misery. That's not who God is. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So that when we gather, when we meet, when we pray, when we disciple, when we encourage, when we weep, when we welcome, when we show mercy, when people fail, because they absolutely will, when we forgive, when we have fellowship, we show the world that we worship a God who loved this world so much, who saved a vile sinner like me at a heavy price. And that's good news. That's what we do every time on communion. We celebrate the fellowship that we have because our Savior gave his life and paid the heavy price of his blood shed for us. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, who could stand if you should mark our iniquities? We could not. I could not. Forgive me for a heart that is no better than the vilest of sinner that we think of when we think of, quote, vile sinners. Because we have the same heart. And it's why we come to this table every Sunday. Because we are in need of grace. I pray for these dear friends who are on this journey together. We are all walking some in the domain of darkness and some in the domain of light. And, O oh Lord, only you can take that person in darkness and bring them to light. So, Holy Spirit, would you do the work that only you can do? Salvation belongs to you. I pray that you would cause people to change and to have their perspective turned. And for those of us, Lord, who are walking with you, help us to see each other through the eyes and lens of the gospel. That we are not more righteous morally than anyone 
And it's what empowers and fuels our mercy, our forgiveness, our grace. I pray that Wellspring Church would be filled with grace. Help us not to be a people who are stuck believing that we have some sort of moral code or standard above anyone else. We will never be able to live up to that standard. But it is a broken people, a saved people, a rescued people that the world will see that we are your disciples. It will be what helps us to persist in faith. Even should persecution come, it will help us press forward. It will give us true lasting friendship and it will free us from the burden of sin and guilt and condemnation. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is Christ Jesus who has died. So Lord, when we come to this table, may we come with joy. May we come with freedom. We bless you and we thank you, Lord, for this good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.